0: Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that as we finish Genesis and continue on in preaching through the scriptures, that all of it reveals you to us. That you're a God who not only created, but revealed yourself to your people, that we might know you, we might have life in you. And so we pray, God, this morning, would you reveal yourself to us? Would your spirit work to overcome our blind eyes and muted hearts? Would you help us to see the truth this morning? Point us to Christ in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for some of us, maybe you're here and and you, you know, throughout, the life of Gospel Life Church, we continued to bring in new people. So that if you're new to Gospel Life Church and you come here, it's you look around and it's like, man, we can say that about many of the people who are here are new in this past year, right? I mean, that's what a church plant is. And so if you're coming in new and you're here at the tail end of Genesis, um, that's okay. We're in Genesis 50. We're finishing Genesis today, a, a journey that we began in the fall of 2019, you know, Advent of 2019 was Genesis chapter 3, right? So this is, this is something we've been at for a while. And you might think, well, if I'm coming in at the tail end in the 40s or even today at chapter 50, how much of this can I really get? Well, you know, I think this morning provides for all of us something of a summary of what the entire book has been about, okay? So um, this is good, and I think maybe the, the, the right place to start then is a realization of something that we're all very familiar with. It's a good starting point. So let's start here. Perspectives change over time. Okay, we all, we all know this to be true. We all understand this. There are very few people who keep the same perspective on everything throughout the course of a lifetime. This is true of individuals. This is true of organizations. This is true of institutions. There are very few who keep the same perspective on the same topic, let alone many topics over the course of many years. So for example, and obviously this does not apply to every circumstance, but in our youth in general, we might be convinced or tempted to think that our parents when speaking or talking to us on any particular topic that with which we, we disagree with them, that they're dumb or out of touch with reality. Okay, so that's childhood. And then in our young adulthood, we might become convinced that they weren't dumb as much as they were just operating out of the best possible wisdom available to them at the time. That while they weren't necessarily out of touch with their time, certainly they're out of touch now with the times because they hold to these outdated and antiquated views. But then as our adulthood progresses, you know, we maybe start having children and raising them We start facing into similar circumstances in our workplace. We start facing many of the same issues they did and we begin to see that they weren't the dumb ones, you know. They weren't the foolish ones. But actually it was us. It wasn't them holding antiquated views as much as us believing that somehow we would figured out what hundreds of years of history before us had failed to grasp and now we have finally arrived. You know, This is why, you know. as a general rule, and again, it's a general rule, but you can't talk about trends unless you paint with a broad brush, so it's useful at times. But as a general rule, exceptions to the rule, but people change their political views over time. It's pretty well documented. You know, as the latest Pew Research report that addresses the generation gap in American politics demonstrates to us, shows us, People will often begin in youth and young adulthood coming out of high school, into college, into their 20s, all fired up on one particular side of the political spectrum. But then as they age, they begin to sometimes consistently see and experience things about human nature that really cuts against the grain of some of the ideals of their former, growingly former political views. And so a shift occurs. I think oftentimes when you talk to young adults, they say, oh, I'm not going to shift, right? But history shows us the shift happens. Now, in our time, some of that change has slowed. Some of the trend has slowed because of an increasing polarization in American politics. Some of it's slowed because people's experience is no longer framed by their observations, their dispassionate observations of society around them, but rather it's framed more by social media grandstanding and the fear of being on the wrong side of wherever the popular mob is headed at any given moment, and so the trend is slowed, but the trend is still evident. It's still there. It's very difficult for someone to go through life without a change of perspective that then changes their views. So one question I often get about this is, well, Jeremy, why then shouldn't Christians change their theological views over time as their perspectives change? After all, everyone experiences a perspective change that changes their views and often that change is good and healthy and actually brings their views more into alignment with reality, right? So why shouldn't Christians change their theology as their perspective changes? I mean, isn't doing otherwise committing the sin of idolatry of certainty? And the answer is, maybe, it depends. It's completely dependent upon what's causing your change in perspective. It's completely dependent on what's causing the quote-unquote certainty. In other words, if you've come to adopt a theology, you or an institution, a particular view or belief about God and how he interacts with the world around you, come to believe in this thing that's out of line with the scriptures, that's out of line with how God reveals himself to his people. If it stems from conversations that you have with the world around you that differ with what God's word says, and then you have this moment of personal revival and reformation, in which maybe it begins as you look in the world around you and you start to see okay, uh, the biblical narrative makes the most sense out of what I'm seeing. Maybe it drives you back into the scriptures, soaking in what the written word tells you, believing it to be authoritative, and so the perspective of the scriptures now changes your views. That's, That's a solid reason for a perspective change, but if you grew up believing something about the Bible, and what it clearly teaches that Christians have essentially unanimously believed for two millennia, and then your experiences and conversations in the world around you, which always inevitably run counter to it, Jesus told us it always would. He told us that the world will always push back against my word, and you change your perspective, then your perspective change is not on solid ground. And after saying this, I'll I'll hear people ask, but why? Like, why in that situation? And the answer is because while you and I may shift our perspectives over time related to a whole host of things, it's finite. I mean, we don't have it figured out, right? So it's finite, uh, imperfect, self-deceptive, outside of the the grace of God, inherently self-deceptive beings. Other... You and I might do that, but God never shifts his perspective. God is unchanging. He's completely infinite, perfect, and truthful. And he's always working his good plan together for those who put their trust in him. And he continues to be at work. This plan, this unchanging plan of God, has been at work. It is at work. And it will be working to save God's people. Our, heart, our hearts can change and shift. Our hearts can be extremely fickle. Our hearts can be easily captivated by things that are for our ill. But God's heart for you does not. And that's why the centrality and authority of the word is essential for the life of the church, you know? That's why the proclamation of God's word is central to our church at at Gospel Life, because here we have God's unchanged word proclaimed. And at the heart of the proclamation is this good news about his good plan for his glory and the good of people, that we might root all of our life in it, that we might see how all of our life is transformed by this good news, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for his glory and the city is good. And we see this unchanging plan of God in three perspectives of the text in Genesis chapter 50. This morning, if you're not there yet, please turn there. As we complete our journey in Genesis, hopefully we can all say, myself included, that our perspectives have changed and that they've come into line over the course of the last year and a half with what God has spoken. You know, many of us may have come into Genesis with an awful lot of preconceptions about what the, the God of the Old Testament really was like, how he really interacted with his people, what he really condoned or didn't condone, you know, because the world around us is constantly beating the drum. So we might have had this thought of, oh, well, God of the Bible believes these things, and this is what he's like, especially in the Old Testament. And then we read for ourselves on the pages of the text and we see uh, what it says and we come into line instead with that. Maybe we were surprised by that over the course of the last year and a half. But here at, at the tail end of all of it, at Genesis 50, we have assurance that all of these repeated themes, you know, Genesis, it's one of the, one of the challenges of, of preaching through Genesis is that it's extremely repetitive. So that, I mean, I would joke around with Vashik, who is also preaching Genesis. He was out ahead of us at the beginning, and now we snuck past him at the finish line tortoise and the hare situation. But in the Czech Republic, they're preaching through this as well. And one of the things that we continue to come back to a lot is um, this challenge of, all right, so what's the main point this week that the author has for us? What's the outline of the text? What's the structure? And we look back, it's like, oh, it's the same as last week's was. Okay. Um, But these repetitive themes came back again and again to shape us. And we have assurance at the tail end that all of them are true. The reality of our sinfulness in need of a savior. Repetitive theme in Genesis. The promise that God graciously shoulders in its entirety, that does not depend on you because it cannot depend on you in any way, but that he graciously bears on his shoulders for you. It's not on the basis of human effort because it can't be, but rather by faith in God's effort. The proclamation that God's working all things together for the good of his people with whom he promises to be present, not requiring them to climb the ladder to him, right? But rather that he descends to us again because... It's the only way this is gonna work, right? It's the only way this can possibly work. We have assurance that all of these themes that we came back to again and again are true, that it stands as a sure foundation on which to step from our own shifting sands. And in this narrative this morning in Genesis 50, I believe that the author has explicitly, intentionally arranged for us a structure in which we see God's good plan working itself out in the present, in the past, and in the future. If you remember from Genesis 1, this has been one of the themes of the author all along with. Things from Israel's past directly relate to their present and future. Their present following as they wait for these coming future events, as we talked about last week. But essentially, this is our outline. God's good plan working itself out in the present, the past, and the future. So the first section continues on from where we left off last week when we saw how, in the midst of, if we remember, in the midst of the problem that we're facing, the problem of human sin that Genesis has demonstrated from the very beginning of the book, in the midst of that problem, there's a promise that would be ultimately fulfilled in Christ and that would ultimately be brought to fulfillment in the end, and yet God's people wait here in the present. We await the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that was made. In right? that present tense in which we wait, that idea continues into chapter 50 in which we now see God's good plan working itself out in the present. If you're taking notes, God's good plan, working itself out in the present, verses 1 through 14. So here, in these first 14 verses, we have a description of the mourning and burial of Jacob. It actually takes up a little more than half of the last chapter is devoted to this. And its primary purpose is to demonstrate how God is presently in the narrative acting to make good on his promise to Jacob. On his promise, actually from the very beginning, but specifically his promise to Jacob in chapter 46 when he told them, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Okay, God... Is presently at work bringing about this good plan for his people here and making good on his promise because here in these first 14 verses, we see exactly what God promised Jacob in terms of what would happen when he comes to Egypt. Transpiring, God went with him. His family was was able not only just to dwell in Goshen as shepherds, but to become the king's shepherds. They thrived as God said they would, Jacob being mourned first by Joseph in verse 1, But then the Egyptians, verse 3, listen to the weight of this statement in verse 3. All the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. All the Egyptians, all of Egypt mourned for this foreign shepherd of a small household that moved their way into Goshen. This honor from the Egyptians is kind of mind-boggling. It's difficult to explain, right? And it just continues to grow to the point at which Pharaoh not only grants grants this special request for Joseph to leave and bury Jacob in his homeland, as God promised, but he provides this huge royal escort to ensure that it can happen for this shepherd from a foreign land. Look at verses 7 through 9. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all of the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. It was, it was a very great company. How on earth is it possible that a Pharaoh... A sitting pharaoh in Egypt would respond this way, granting this kind of a request, and fulfilling this kind of a funeral, grieving in this kind of a manner, seeing to it that the journey was so secure that his own servants and elders went up with with Jacob's family to the burial, sending his own chariots and horsemen. I don't want you to move too quickly past the reality That Pharaoh has done this because, listen to me, to put it another way, the same chariots that would be pursuing Israel in their exodus from Egypt in order to re-enslave them are now the, the chariots here that grant them safe passage out of Egypt. How? How does Pharaoh respond this way? And the answer is God's faithfulness to his promise. That's how. That's the whole point of Genesis. If you're here and you're like, So what's the summary of Genesis? Here we see something of it, situation after situation in which we learn that when things are impossible for man, they're more than possible for God, that his blessing and promise doesn't come about through the possible means of effort, you know, that we can accomplish through things that like we do. That's not how God works. Like we should know that by now at the tail end of Genesis. It comes rather by impossible circumstances in which we find ourselves and in which God says, see, you need a Savior, and now I rescue you. Now I redeem you. It can only be me, right? It's not Ishmael. It's not your own effort. It's Isaac. It's only something that I can do for you. God told Jacob that he would go with him to Egypt, and he's clearly done as he promised in the present. God was faithful to Egypt even to the point where the surrounding nations saw what was happening, like the nations took note of this burial that happened. They said, look at how grievous of a mourning this is, right? In this spectacular display, we see God's handiwork presently to bring about his promise. And he brings about his promise presently to grant his people hope, and he grants his people the kind of hope that the nations take note of, right? Right? God's good plan working itself out in the present. But now as the narrative continues, we see God's good plan working itself out in the present, or in the in the uh, human activity in the past. Because Jacob is now gone, the brothers once again, as they have been throughout these narratives, are worried about their future. And with Jacob now out of the picture, the, these brothers kind of feel like, okay, in the past... In former events, in in this human activity of these last few chapters, we sinned against our brother. Was Jacob like the one who stayed their hand? Was it like in order to keep peace with their father so that he wouldn't have to die seeing his sons enslaved? But now that he's out of the picture, is he free to deal out retribution? This is what the brothers are, are feeling here. So look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they're saying, we're guilty of this. Like, we did it. We committed these atrocities. And not only are we guilty, but he's in a position to deal out retribution. And not only is he in that position, it's not like he's presiding over a court in which these brothers sinned against some other person and... He's trying to figure it out. They sinned against him. They committed evil against him. And he's in a position to now do something about it. So verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. So the father, now giving a, giving a word to the son. Okay, Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin. Because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Okay. Stopping there just for a minute. Here again, just as they have in the past, they throw themselves on the mercy of Joseph. Like... We've seen them do this repeatedly, they do it again at the very end of the book. There's a recognition on their part of their sin against him and that he's in this position to do something about it. He's in the position to deal out judgment and retribution and, just to clarify, this judgment from even their perspective would be a just judgment. They're the ones who shout out, behold, we are your slaves, because they think that being slaves is getting off easy. That's, that's a good deal for them from their vantage point. And yet everything that transpired here, everything that transpires in this narrative serves two purposes. One that we see right here and another that's foreshadowed moves us into the final section, okay? First we see that behind these events and human plans in this longer narrative stands a sovereign God who's unchanged, right? And who has an unchanging plan for his people. The activity of the brothers can't thwart the unchanging plan of God. The activity of the brothers can't take a good plan from God and make him like, whoa, whoa, what happened there? That's not what I thought, you know, was going to happen. I'm a little caught off guard, and now I don't know how I'm quite going to do this. That's not what happens. In fact, God is at work through their work. He's at work doing this, and that work began in Genesis 1, verses 4 through 31, when he repeatedly declares... About his creation, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. God's plan from the very beginning was good. It was good for his people, right? And it constantly declares it. And now that good plan continues to be brought about even through the consequences of sinful action. Through his dealings with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, God continued to bring about this good plan. And so Joseph's response is reflective of God's work in the past. We've seen it in the present, God's work in the past, starting in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly for them. This is amazing. You know, Okay, so we'll observe it for the third time, but again, feel the weight of it. Joseph's within his rights to deal out retribution. He has the power to do it, to rightly deal out the kind of judgment and offense of which his brothers are absolutely guilty of perpetrating against him, and the kind of power at his disposal to make the kind of example out of at least some of them to make sure that these kinds of things are taken seriously. And yet he acknowledges that a sovereign God worked even through human events to save many people alive. In the midst of having the kind of power to bring wrath and and retribution that these people deserved, he acknowledges a sovereign God worked even through human events to save many people alive. Jacob and his descendants would have died apart from God's work in and through Joseph, and yet now they can flourish because of God's action in bringing them to Egypt. And so Joseph says... Yeah, see, if you look at the present, you can see that God is at work here. When he came with my father to Egypt, laid him to rest the way that he promised him. But if you look in the past, even in the midst of human sin, even during the times that that Joseph didn't understand, that Jacob was weeping over a lost son, and that, that Joseph was saying to the cupbearer, remember me when you go before Pharaoh, because I shouldn't be here. This is unjust. Like, even in those moments, he acknowledges that God was at work in the past, Even in the midst of human sin, faithful to his promises, he had not changed, his plan had not changed. It continued to be good and working out his good plan for his people. And now we start to see a glimpse, even here of our last section, is God's good plan will work itself out in the future. So God's good plan works itself out for God's people in the present, in the past, and now in the future. Because here in these verses that we just read, I agree, you know, with the late, great John Sailheimer. Last opportunity to quote this guy for a while, so I'm going to take advantage of it. Um, But I agree with him here that we see a shadow of Israel's history and God's good plan moving forward. He, He writes this. He says, The last description of Joseph's dealings with his brothers, the very last description of his dealings, is this statement. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's difficult not to see in this picture of Joseph and his brothers, a foreshadowing of the future community of the sons of Israel in exile, awaiting their return to the land, to that exact same community, the call went out by the prophet Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, she's received from the Lord's hand, double for all their sins, do we see this? comfort Israel in the midst of their sin, comfort Israel in the midst of a sin that separated them from God, comfort Israel in the midst of a sin that brought them out of their land and an exile in a foreign land in which they would have to wait for God's deliverance. Why? How? Because God will redeem them. As we'll see, God will be at work in Israel's future to bring about that redemption. So starting in verse 22 Through the end of the chapter, let's read the final verses of Genesis together. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Here we have what Old Testament scholars refer to as the clearest expression of hope taught in these last narratives. So why is this the clearest expression? Expression, Because not only did God do what he did to save Jacob and to save Joseph's brothers alive and to save many alive after them, bringing God's people out of this land that he, and, and into the land of promise, restoring them to himself, God's people in his place under his rule. But he would use this as a means to save the whole world. God's plans are mighty. God's plans are larger than, I th- than Joseph even knows when he utters this statement. And you know, Joseph knows that he's, he's not gonna see the day. You know, he's not gonna see the day when God's people return to the land. And many generations of God's people here in Egypt, they're gonna be born and they're gonna die without seeing the day where this promise is fulfilled. And yet looking forward, Joseph clearly sees God's plan is good. God's faithful. He will do as he promises. God's plan will continue to work itself out in the future. Like his father Jacob, Joseph wants to be buried in the land of promise. We'll talk about it. As we see in verse 25, And like Jacob, he makes his sons swear to him, just like Jacob did with his sons, to bury his bones. When they finally return to the land, take me with you there. He knows he won't be alive for it, but he's able to express trust and hope he has in the Lord. Verse 24, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Here we see a tangible connection once again as to why this purchase of a parcel of land in Genesis 23, that we were in Pete's backyard, and I remember the day, and I remember telling you, we're gonna be coming back to this a lot. We're gonna be coming back to it at the very end of the book. Sarah was was about to die. Abraham purchases this parcel of land and to, to bury Sarah in. Why was it so important? Because it's a statement that this is their land, that God will do as he promises because he has spoken and what he says is true. And we can put our hope in that. And I struggled to write this sermon this week. I struggled because oftentimes, for me, these can feel like discouraging days, dark days for the church at large in the West for Christians as they seek to engage surrounding culture with the gospel. I want to engage surrounding culture with the gospel. We, I know at Gospel Life, want to engage surrounding culture with the gospel. This is why we planted a church. We want our non-believing friends, neighbors, and co-workers to know Christ because they uniquely need Jesus, you guys. We have a hope that doesn't just save people, but it sanctifies, it grows, it changes, it's for the good of the city. So we want to engage surrounding culture with the gospel. It feels like dark days as we do that, and there's even more trouble ahead, I'm afraid, for those who simply say alongside of 2,000 years of church history that the scriptures are true and authoritative. Those who confess simply what historically Orthodox Christians have always believed for 2,000 years will see even more trouble. Jesus says to expect it. In John's account of the gospel, he says, the world will give you trouble. Nevertheless, when that trouble comes, you know, it can be really easy, I think, to despair. You know, when you see friends and people around you losing jobs, losing in heartache opportunities for adoption, things like this, because of a confession that the Bible is true, when that trouble comes, it can be easy to despair and say, is God really at work in these days, in these times, and so many Christians abandon the gospel for something else, trade it in for what surrounding culture is trying to hand to them, or like weirdly try to shape the gospel to look exactly like what the culture is, is handing them, like a little Indiana Jones bag of sand idol thing, trading it off even though it's not going to work? Is God really at work? when the church begins to abandon the gospel, when churches begin to abandon the gospel, the answer to that question is yes. The people of Egypt forget all about Joseph. You know that. You know, like, you need to know that. That's what happens next. The people of Egypt forget all about him. The next pharaohs forget all about Joseph. The people of Israel become their slaves. And generation after generation of God's people cry out for deliverance on the basis of this promise that Joseph clings to at the very end of the book. Most of them will not see the time where the Lord brings them out. And even most of those whom the Lord brings out won't see the day in its entirety when they're returned to their land. Moses himself won't see that day. So should they abandon hope? Should they say, God is not for us, it's a real temptation, I think, that we need to be wary of. It's a real temptation to become angry at the circumstances in which you find yourself and maybe even then allow yourself to become angry with God for allowing the circumstances. Especially when those circumstances appear to put his people in a position in which they're suffering at the hands of the wicked, waiting for the Lord to bring deliverance. It could be easy to say, well, I guess God's promise wasn't genuine because here we are preaching the word and keeping it central, and yet churches are routinely attacked, even by other Christians, for being faithful. That's a thing. That's happening. Attacked for faithfulness. It can be easy to say, I guess God must not be active in these times, but hear me, Gospel Life Church, God is at work. He was at work in the past through through human circumstances to bring his promise to bear. He's at work presently as we wait for that promise to be completed. He will continue to be at work in the future, saving many people alive and ultimately calling his church to himself in glory. How is this possible? Because... Just as God was at work through the sinful human events to bring Joseph to a place where he could lay aside his power and forgive his brothers. Though they were guilty, though he had the power to bring retribution, though he had the position and authority to do that, though he would have been within his rights to do that, he reconciles them back to their father and to himself. God was working through sinful human events to do that, and God was working through sinful human events to bring the one who he promises us throughout Genesis Through Jacob's words in chapter 49, a true and better Joseph, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who though he would have the power to judge us, the power to judge the world, and though we would be guilty, he instead came to save us since the world was already judged and found guilty like the brothers were. But through his death on our behalf, he declares us innocent. He declares us innocent for those who trust in him. We actually see That God brought us this good news by way of sinful human events, you know, to save many people alive, right? So, Joseph has this acknowledgement that a sovereign God worked even through human events to save many people alive. What does that point us forward to? It points us forward to these sinful human events that actually were used by God to save many people alive. So P- the Apostle Peter prays this in Acts chapter 4, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant, said, When the world set themselves against Jesus as his enemy and gathered together against him to put him to death, Jesus did not say, I'm in the position and power to judge you and, and to deal out retribution, so here's this retribution that you rightly deserve. And the church in the first century didn't throw up their hands and say, God must not be at work, but rather, Jesus willingly performed the work that we could never do because That was the work. This was the work of God to save us. His death on our behalf. How do we know that we can trust God? In the midst of dark days, in the midst of days when it's like, man, it's hard, and it's going to become increasingly harder to espouse trust in the God of the Bible. How how can we trust God? God, as we do that? How do do we know that in the midst of changing perspectives and discouragements and even persecution from the world around us, that we can actually trust that he's good? How do we know that we can trust him when after standing firm in his truth, we're taken to task by the world around us and even by others in the church? And the broad road that's just standing right there seems so alluring, you know? Because with the broad road, you don't get any of this nonsense. You, broad road's easy. You just conform to what the culture says. And, man, that looks really nice. What does it look like? Why not just abandon it, you know? Why not change my perspective away from the Lord? Because the perspective of the world seems to have so much more immediate gratification. And if we stay on this narrow road, where do we find comfort? Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Where do we find comfort in the midst of exile, comfort in the midst of the narrow road? Here's where. Here's the answer to all of those questions. In the reality that God is unchanging, and through these broken circumstances, I promise you, I promise you, he is at work to bring about his good plan. It was good when he started it, and it will be good when he brings it to completion, and it's good right now as God's people wait. It's good. He already enacted this plan as Jesus took the penalty that you deserved and that I deserved on the cross. The Father sent Jesus, the Father sent his Son, and the Father sent word through his Son to grant forgiveness to his people. How? By bearing that penalty, bearing the burden that you and I deserve dying the death that you and I deserve to die, then raising to a new life in which you can join him that starts now and that goes on forever. You uniquely need Jesus. This world uniquely needs Jesus. And one day he's coming again, and he'll come in such a way that displays his power over against any power you think this world has. And we'll see that glorious return in ways that echoes this imagery of Genesis as we get into Revelation this fall. I'm really excited about it, but now we trust. How do we know we can trust? How do we know we can trust God when circumstances are hard? Because God's not like disconnected from it, dispassionately connected up in heaven, allowing this to happen for us, watching down on us as we deal with it, being like, yeah, it's too bad. He stepped in to the brokenness, He stepped into the sin, stepped into hard circumstances to bear it for us, that we might not experience the very worst of it, which was his wrath against us. Eternal separation from the Father, that all who call upon him by faith can have life. Can have him, and therefore have life. And this is why we come to the table. It's a declaration of God's people that we wait. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We wait knowing that he's coming and yet while we wait we have him and he gives us life. How? Through his death on our